white guy. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Ghouls and gore. And sometimes a little more. My bloody podcast. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone, to My Bloody Podcast. So happy to be here again with you today. I'm Brian Kluger, and I'm joined by the man who I just want to have my limbs severed with, Preston Barta. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. How are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic. And we have we have another special guest on the show today, a, a returning grandmaster of filmmaking and champion BLT maker, Rodman Flender. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for asking. How are you in these nutty times? These nutty times are crazy. Yes, doing well. Yeah. It's hot here in Dallas, Texas. About how about how how are you? Have you been uh, making any more good BLTs? Have you been uh, doing anything uh, film-wise in the shutdown and COVID? Um, I'm I am continuing to make BLTs, um, and uh, I actually this afternoon uh, <laughs> I, I think we've just lost half of your listeners. They don't want to hear about my recipes and my cooking. Although that's about what's uh, you know keeping me going in this in our bizarre. Um, you know, a Groundhog Day-like existence where, where one day is like the next. Right. So do you um, do you find yourself, like, writing more scripts during this or watching more movies or thinking of new ideas? Or are you actually working on something else? All, all of the above. I am writing something. Um, so in a way, I have no excuses not to write because, uh, you know, <laughs> what are my options? Um, and, uh, I have been keeping up with, you know, the, the new movies, the, the new, uh, genre movies, uh, that have come out. I watched, uh, watched the, uh, the beach house last night. Have you seen that one? I did. I reviewed it and I actually talked to the filmmakers and actors for oh. it and it, I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. Did you like it? Yeah, I'm always happy to see Cape Cod horror. I think it's um, I think it's a genre that's not um, there. There are not enough entries in the Cape Cod horror um, canon, so I was very happy to see that they did film that on Cape Cod, didn't they? It looked like they Cape did. Cod. It was uh, producer Andrew Corkin's dad's house. Oh, nice. That, <laughs> that was the producer of the movie, his dad's house. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if you talked about that, but I, I looked at that and thought. I wrote this on Letterboxd. Is this like the future making? You know, four people in one location. I mean, this. You know, if they made it with a skeleton crew, that is probably the future, or or at least the um the next year or so of filmmaking. I, I don't see how else you know we're gonna make movies. But I I liked it, and that's proof that you could do it well. You could t tell an intimate story with um that's contained with a minimum number of characters and make it compelling. Right, no, for sure. They did a good job. Uh, it was good. And they said they shot it in under three weeks and skeleton crew and the whole deal. So pretty cool. Yeah, I believe it. I also said, did you see One Bedroom? I thought that was one of the better genre movies. Um, Which was One Bedroom? I did not see that. Which one was that? One, one BR. That's what I think it's. It's the number one in the uh, BR. Uh, a woman comes to L.A. Um, and moves into an apartment complex 
and uh, I'll just leave it at that. Weird goings on in the apartment complex. I, I thought it was I thought it was kind of in the tradition of like the Roman Polanski apartment horror trilogy. If you like those movies, like The Tenant, or Repulsion, or Rose, Rosemary's Babies, Rosemary's Baby. It seemed like like if those movies were like three act movies, this movie would be like Act Five and Six of an apartment horror. Like it goes even for I don't know. It, I, I dug it. So if we're talking genre movies, that's another. You, contemporary one that's just come out um, in the past few months that I think is worth checking out. I, I'm gonna have to check that out for sure. One BR. Yeah, one br. Cool. Um, so let's let's jump in it. We're 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 gonna talk about um, Idle Hands today with you because I know last time we talked about Eat Brains Love, which we so much enjoyed, and Idle Hands back in 1999 when we were all young and spry yeah <laughs> and uh it's hard to believe that's been 21 years ago i i can't believe it and so you know what does that movie mean to you in present day like going back to idle hands now like uh, what, what does it mean to you right now well it means it 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 means you know as uh you, you, i i it's hard to talk about idle hands without talking about um the um, the the context in in which it was released because it it's it's re- it had the unfortunate release date of ten days after the the tragedy at Columbine and uh, I was very happy and fond of the movie we all worked very hard on it after doing a a lot of very low budget um, horror movies this was my first big break and in, in it was you know it, it remains the biggest budgeted thing I've ever worked on. Um, so, uh, because of its unfortunate, uh, release date, um, it was, uh, it, it was, uh, I, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of flushed down the toilet and, and swept up in, um, in a, in a unfortunate political shitstorm. And, uh, you know, it's a horrible, tragic time. People's lives were lost. This is, this is just a stupid movie. So, so I'm not complaining. But over the years, I've kind of, um, you know, I've moved on and have done television and other films. But it was always kind of a painful memory for me. And then, as we approached the 20th anniversary, uh, I started getting invited to screenings. There was. Um, a screening uh, at the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, Virginia, and these screenings, these anniversary screenings, were were selling out. And I, and people, younger people who had discovered the film at Blockbuster or on video, uh, were telling me how how fond they were of it. And that really that moved me. That really surprised me. Uh, that over the years, over the decades, it kind of found its audience. And that has only um, I've only really um, realized that in like say like the past two years, as we approached the the 20th anniversary of of the movie and these screenings started and and I started going to them. So right now, um, like if you were to ask if you were to ask me 10 years ago, like at the 10th anniversary of Idle Hands, you know I I, I might not have even wanted to talk about it or, or you know would have wanted to talk about the TV pilot I just directed or, or, or whatever else I was writing. I still want to talk about, you know, the, the things I'm doing now. But now, 20 years later, after these screenings and 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 um, being a pro and learning that it has sort of this, um, it's it's developed this following of younger people over the years. Uh, it means a lot to me. It 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 means 
Uh, I'm very proud of that. I'm really, you know, I, I'm glad. Here's what I'm glad. I'm glad that the movie can finally be on its own um, successes or failures, you know, um, like or hate the movie, whatever, you know, uh, just look at it for what it is. Please don't, um, t please take it out of um, a uh, political context. And it's okay. Uh, I, I mean, I remember Roger Ebert at the time, the late, great Roger Ebert film critic, uh, he, you know, his, um, his, his guest co-host on his TV show was a woman who had the uh, a syndicated column called The Family Film Goer. And, uh, and I think you can probably see it on YouTube or whatever, but I remember she said she thought, they, they, they both gave it two thumbs down, right? It was two thumbs down. And she started saying that she thought the film should be pulled, that it's not the right time. And uh, Roger Ebert said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. It's not a good movie, but the only thing this movie is going to inspire anyone to do is maybe buy Fangoria magazine and figure out how they did those special effects. Let's not um, start saying that movies are, are, you know, that movies and this movie in particular uh, is is uh, is an ill to society. Society has other ills, and this stupid bad movie. I'm, I'm now paraphrasing. He didn't use those exact words, but that was his sentiment. And I was, I, I, and I was like, right on. You know, I mean, yeah, okay. You didn't like it. That you're entitled, and I respect that opinion. But I'm so glad he didn't. Um, he, he didn't fall into the trap of 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 um, politicizing it. Um, how's that for a very long-winded answer to a very simple question? <laughs> no, it was it was great. It was uh, wonderful. I liked it, and I'm glad you brought that the the Roger Ebert up. That was because yeah. um, I know I know he was really into movies, and you know his way of saying how he liked things was different from the rest. So that's good. Um, so please set the stage here. So it's it's 19 what 98, the late 90s. You're doing the independent circuit and this opportunity to do Idle Hands falls in your lap with just a crazy ass cast. Uh, can you set the stage and what you were doing at that time and then that meeting that got landed you the job? Well, I had been doing, I had already sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of graduated from the Roger Corman school. I had uh, done a bunch of Corman movies and um, I sort of segued into uh, more uh, into television, more television work, uh, because I love working with actors and having done um, kind of the horror movies I was doing, I I, I was getting uh, I had done Leprechaun too and uh, loved Warwick Davis, but wanted to do work where uh, I didn't where I, I could really work with the actors more and not spend so much time waiting for prosthetics to dry that sort of thing. So that's when um, I got into television because the the casts on on on, um, on TV were fantastic great actors and uh, so I, I did shows like um like Chicago Hope and uh, Party of Five and for one reason or another got um, I, I started doing a, kind of a lot of these teen shows like the OC and Dawson's Creek and that sort of thing and uh, I was not the first director on Idle Hands uh, they had another director before me, and then for whatever reason, I don't know, uh, creative differences, uh, he dropped out, and they needed someone. Devin was already attached, and I don't know whether it was because of his schedule, which is often the case with movies. They're often scheduled around actors' availabilities. Uh, they, they needed someone 
fast. So I had done a lot of teenage stuff. I had done Tales from the Crypt for HBO, and I had a you know a horror background. So and I could work. I had proven I could work quickly with my television schedule. So I was the right guy at the right time. I came in. I pitched them my idea, and luckily they went for it. And it was uh, it was like I said, it was fast. It was fast for me because. Um, they had already started pre-production with someone else, so uh, I did go in, and and uh, and that that's what happened. Was your idea that you pitched them pretty much what showed up on the final cut? Yeah, I think so. I think you know, going back a long time now, um, but you know, I, I, I and it was a studio movie, so there were a lot of cooks in the kitchen, but uh, I I can't. I, I'm not going to say, uh, oh, you know, the studio took it away from me or or recut it or fucked it, whatever. You know, for better or worse, like the movie or hate the movie, I, I, I own it. I claim it. It's my movie. I mean, the, you know, famously the uh, ending, we completely uh, shot a new ending, which is on, it was on the DVD, and I'm, I'm sure they've got it on the um, Screen Factory re-release. I think they do. Uh uh, we had this big, uh, much more serious ending, and then after we tested the movie and found that the audiences really liked the humor and like the banter uh, of of the three guys, uh, we kind of leaned into that and and did the ending that's now in the movie, which isn't as uh, big a spectacular special effects kind of apocalyptic ending, but it it is more appropriate for the 70 minutes that precede it. So. Um, uh, I, I own all of that. It was, it, you know, it, it was collaborative, and it was, it, it is a studio movie. Um, but yeah, I, 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 for better or worse, I do think it's mine. Perfect. I wanted to ask a little bit more about that ending because I listened for the first time. I've listened to your commentary that you did with Seth Green, and it's on the Scream Factory release. And by the way, I should say that that was a lot of fun because I like that you guys kind of deconstruct the process of recording a commentary, how there might be some cases where it's, hey, this is this is what like Arnold Schwarzenegger has like a really funny commentaries where he just kind of describes everything of what's going on. Yeah, you guys are having a little bit of fun with it and uh, poking like Seth Green, maybe making a joke about the amount of blood that's in there. And then you're, you're you want to focus more on like some of the, the serious side of the process <laughs> right, of making it. The artiste. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, that's a losing like battle to try and, um, you know, when you're in a room with Seth green and, and he's, uh, and, and he's, uh, being hilarious, you know, to try and make things serious or to try to try to, you know, get a, a word in edgewise i i learned get up we recorded that 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 commentary was recorded for the for the actual release or the initial release in 99 i haven't listened to it since so that whole technology and that whole idea of of directors commentaries and actors comment was very new at the time so we didn't know uh you know we kind of didn't know what we were doing we were i like i said i haven't listened to it since um I was kind of uh, uh, terrified at the idea that <laughs> that Scream Factory was going to 
put it on the new um, the new thing because it was because it is so old and I have no idea. But if you say it's still fun, well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, you don't have to worry about anything that's <laughs> said. But uh, what what kind of came to mind through all that, especially like hearing a little bit about how the the ending was a little bit is different from how it tested. Um, is is that something that you is it tough to navigate that on set where um, the I don't know, like Seth Green has like all these lines in the film and it just kind of has like this fast and loose kind of feel to it. But yet it just kind of it steers like the tone remains consistent. Uh, Is that something that's difficult for you to maintain or is it relatively easy? Well, that is one of the best compliments uh, I think you can give a a director to say that the tone remains consistent because uh, that that's uh, one of the most challenging things in making a movie is to maintain a consistent tone. As you know, you know, movies take years to make. You know, you sit down and you watch it in 90 minutes or two hours, but you realize it's you know the script was 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 written over months, and then the shooting is over weeks or months, and that you know so it can go wrong or go off the rails, and you have two actors. Sometimes you see a movie and two styles of acting they seem like they're in different movies so um so thank you i i think that that is when someone's like you know what what, what is it that a, a director actually does i think that is sort of you know one of the most important things is to figure out figure out the tone of the movie whether it's a broad comedy or a small comedy or a very you know drama whatever the uh, series and, and maintain that tone consistently now, horror comedy is like one of the hardest. It, that, that's, a, that's a very thin, tight rope to walk. Um, and very, very uh, few have done it successfully. Um, you know, you can, Shaun of the De- Dead, uh, Roger Corman's original Little Shop of Horrors. You know, it's a small, I think, small group. It may, may even be, you know, uh, it, it, it's hard. So, um that that is something you know you you shoot and you just you try and maintain I, you know I just tried to keep it funny and tried to maintain the tone in my head as as we shot and then you know we learned when uh, we were done that this whole ending um, was um, I- inconsistent what, with what people enjoyed the most about the movie I mean in the editing process we probably could have you know if we had I guess cut down some of the banter, or, but it, it was so good. I, I realized it was good on set. Um, I realized it was good in the casting process. The chemistry between um, Seth Green and Eldon Hansen when we cast the movie, saw it right then and there in the casting process. So, uh, you know, movies evolve. You learn these things, and that is that's a that's the struggle is to maintain um, maintain the consistent tone. I think it's important to kind of know what you want going in but don't be so rigid about it that if uh something great comes along and some you you see something wonderful like the um like the camaraderie and the rapport between uh seth and eldon not you know if rigidly i had in my mind i didn't want it to to go in that direction i kind of forced it forced that not to happen um I, i would have lost what remains to be one of the greatest things about that movie so uh you know it's important to keep your eyes and ears open and see you know see what evolves and see what works 
and um, strike that balance. That's that's why it's hard. That's why movie making is hard, and that's why so few movies are good. <laughs> so, something that else that occurred to me when when watching this commentary is just how many uh, freeze frame jokes there are in this, and I just. I mean, I think about those things when I watch movies, but, you know, for the first few watches, I'm like sucked into the story at hand. And every so often after watching it a few times, I'm able to find some of these things. And so it's nice when I can tune on, uh, turn on a commentary and you'll have like, hey, pay attention up here. Jessica Alba's playing the bass on the balcony. Had no idea. And then you'll have like uh, the menu for that that burger joint having various things like a, a mixture between banana and burger, which is like a heavenly mix or whatever it says <laughs> on the thing, which is just absolutely hilarious. But yet I'm like, how do you have like the time to think about those things, which I know you're working with a huge department and they can just kind of bring themselves to it. But like, all right, how, how much thought are you putting into like, things that we may not see but will enjoy upon repeat viewings or being able to turn on the commentary and find these things um well i think you know shooting is so shooting is often like triage anyway and it doesn't i kind of learned this on idle hands that i thought it would be very different from um you know the the roger corman style Uh, and and uh, obviously, we had a lot more time and a lot more money, but for some reason, no matter how much time you have, there's still never enough. So you start to see things. I, I guess is in the editing room. I start to see things, and you know, everyone. You say there's a you know, here's a. It's, it's interesting. People don't realize this. Like you, you write a script and you just say, okay, someone's at a restaurant and they flip through a menu, and it's like a tiny thing, right? They flip through a menu, but someone has to make that menu. Someone has to write that menu. So, you know, you can't, it's just like kind of off the top of your head as you're writing, but when you actually get to shooting, you need a menu and you can't just, there are rights. You can't just like go out and and, and buy a menu. And it's it's a fairly easy thing to do, but someone's got to do it. So um, I I, I guess it's in editing when we kind of slow down and look at the frames and see funny things nice it was kind of in the spirit of the movie i don't i was it was it the burger jungle menu i should go back and take a look at that because i don't really remember but um it's when you go to order uh through the drive-through and then if you pause it there you can see some of the the funny text that goes on there right but that's the art department. i guess the art department just came up with their they you know they knew they knew the tone of the movie and uh they they came up with those things. It's funny, you know. If I, I guess we were aware of that, or I, I was aware of that, because the um, DVD was new, and you know, the, at that time the, the the quality was so good that you could freeze a frame and and make out text. You know, before that VHS, the quality wasn't so great, and with VHS, if you tried to do a freeze frame, it would um, it would be it might be like between fields and be kind of blurry and stretchy or something so um now it's funny if you go back to older movies uh and look at uh, especially low budget older movies if you go and look at a scene where someone's reading i, I do this just someone's going uh, reading a newspaper and you, you, you freeze the frame and the headline is you know 
manhunt in you know downtown San Francisco or whatever it is, and then you actually start reading the text. It's you. It has nothing to do with the headline. It's just some some uh, uh, art, you know, some, some newspaper they bought, and the text will be about you know a new zoo opened or some something, you know. But now, because especially now with HD, you know, if you if you are telling a movie about a manhunt in San Francisco and the headline newspaper, someone's got to write the story because an idiot like me will freeze the frame and then try and read the. The, the article and see if they actually backed up the headline with um, <laughs> with the story. Just more work, more work for the art department. Yeah, I I can say that I have I'm a meticulous film watcher now, but I would say probably before it it was getting the Blu-ray for Titanic of all movies that got me looking a little bit closer because I remember James Cameron was pointing out. Uh, hey, if you freeze frame right here or pause the movie right here, you can see the actual uh, one-legged prostitute that's in Jack's drawings. And wow. so it's just amazing. So I got to ask about, do you have a favorite freeze frame joke, either from this movie or any of movies in your filmography? A freeze frame joke, like something that you would see if you, if you uh, did a freeze frame. Um, well, you know what? You know what? I kind of made them um, in Eat Brains Love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I don't know if you if you've seen the movie, but there's um, but there's a um, there's a montage where the uh, our, our our two young zombies are off on their um, road trip. Their spree, yeah, their their road trip, and their they 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 think they're. Um, Zombie vigilantes, as Jake calls it, and um, it's funny. I had that in mind when I actually came up with these um, newspaper headlines uh, because I I I I wanted to force them on the audience. I didn't I didn't want people to uh, to uh, to have to stop and do it. So so I made my own, um, and uh, I think. Uh, there, there's one image that's sort of a, uh, a, a, a tip of the hat to Cannibal Holocaust, where the school superintendent is skewered on a pole, and the headline is, um, uh, or, or crossing guard is skewered. That's what it was, like the crossing guard is skewered, and the headline is crossing guard skewered, and there's like a little sub-headline, and it says like, uh, superintendent says, this isn't my mess, you know. Or, yeah, superintendent quits, this isn't my mess, you know, stuff like that. So... <laughs> Um, to answer your question, yes, those those are my favorites, and um, I, I like them so much. I f- I froze them in the movie to force the audience to watch them and read them. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I like that. Um, I want to I want to talk about some of the casting because it's an impressive cast, but some of the uh, lower key players, um, such as the wonderful, hilarious Mindy Sterling, Kyle right. Gass, and Ricky Martin <laughs> out of nowhere. How did this happen? How, how did we get all these amazing talents? <laughs> so, um, you know, people like Mindy Sterling, I, I had um, uh, been a fan. She was involved in The Groundlings. And even if you go back to my very first Roger Corman movie, The Unborn, uh, you'll see Lisa Kudrow in a small role and Kathy Griffin in a more prominent role, which is really, it was a serious role and she's really, really good in it. Um, I was always, uh, um, 
a fan of the talent in in the groundlings and the comedy talent and uh um so casting good comic actors in funny roles or serious roles is something that uh I, i've always done yeah like i said going back to even my very first movie that's awesome. And do you rem- do you remember how Ricky Martin became a part of this film? To answer your question. Oh yes, yes, yeah. I said, did you uh, did do you remember how Ricky Martin became a part of the film? Oh boy, I I, I don't. I really don't. That's um to go back and uh, <laughs> see the notes. <laughs> see, see the casting notes. Yeah. And you filmed a lot of this uh, movie in Pasadena, correct? Yeah, the exteriors. Um, we're in Pasadena, in the same neighborhood that Halloween was was filmed in. So that seemed like uh, karmically a good idea, you know. If um, if uh, whatever was in the air when Halloween was shot, if that by osmosis could drift into our cameras, I'll take it. Yeah. No, no, that's good. Um, and let's talk a little bit about uh, the music, because there's, you know, so many people that contribute to the soundtrack, including Blink-182, Offspring, Rob Zombie, The Vandals, and Two Live Crew, but also the composer um, Graham Ravel. Uh, uh, Can you talk a little bit about bringing him aboard? Because he's had such an impressive resume, and then as well as getting, you know, Offspring and Blink-182 in the movie, as well as others, because it's a a great movie uh, on its own, and then added all this amazing music from the 90s. It's just killer. I love it. Well, Graham, Graham Ravel, fantastic composer and, and super interesting guy. He was in, um, in an, in, he started out in an industrial rock band. The name of it escaped, escapes me right now. But I remember when I was talking to different composers um, and he had done, oh, forgive me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but I think he had done at the time one of the Chucky movies. He right? did Child's Play 2 and 3. Child's Play 2 and 3, that's right. And I thought those were terrific scores. And, um, and then when I started, and then when I met him, and he was telling me about this like industrial rock band he was in, I just, I just wanted to continue, you know, keep talking to him about that. It was, it was, it was just, um, it was just fascinating to me. So, uh, um, you know, he did a brilliant job, and the um, I, I guess I'm uh, I, I'm sort of an original punk from the '70s. You know, I, I grew up in the time of the Clash and the Buzzcocks and the Sex Pistols and the Ramones. The you know the real OG '70s punks. And in the '90s, I, I don't know if that style ever ever went away, but in the '90s. Um, uh, bands like The Offspring or in the movie, you know, had kind of taken that energy and taken that that style of music and 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 Green Day. You know, it, 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 all of a sudden it became very radio friendly and very commercial and very uh, you know top ten, which it really wasn't in the 70s. I don't think the Ramones ever had a top ten hit or the Clash. You know, so um, so stylistically it was kind of the music that i loved and and grew up with and commercially it was hot at the time so to get you know the offspring uh in the movie doing a ramones cover was just uh you know musical heaven for me as a director uh again so when i say you know it's like uh love love it or hate hate it i I take full credit for it even 
yeah, that music and that style of music and having a band like the Offspring do a Ramones cover in the movie, that's all me. And luckily, you know, it was commercial in the studio supported that. Um, um, yeah, very proud of that. Proud, proud of that soundtrack. Even, even it's funny you mentioned the two the two live crew. Um, <laughs> great. The pop, pop that coochie song pop was. <laughs> I know that was twerking. That video is now like at that time. Who, who would think that uh, twerking would become the you know national craze like hula hoops? You know, like like hula hooping <laughs> in the fifties. That's what twerking is to now, right? And um, they were right. Uh, having that video in the movie was uh, was foreshadowing the 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 thing that all the kids are doing. I know they were they were ahead of their time for sure. Is there was this ever released? Because you know you and we've talked about this the last time you were on the show about how we're big uh, record album and vinyl enthusiasts and passionate yeah. about it. Has this ever been released on vinyl? Because I have never found it. And good God, it's one of my holy grails that I want this soundtrack on vinyl, maybe through Mondo. I don't know. Um, not, not that I'm aware of. Uh, I think it, it came out on CD on Time Bomb Records on CD, and I think that was pretty much it. But yeah, I'd love, uh, like you, I'm a, I'm a vinyl head and would love to love to see a vinyl um final soundtrack of it as well. I think it'd be great. We, we, we should get in touch with the right people and press this thing in a limited edition. Yeah. <laughs> um, just a side note, as we're talking about records, um, during this time in COVID, have you been find yourself at any record stores or at least ordering anything online that you're enjoying record-wise? Uh, yeah, you know, it's, 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 um, it's kind of, it's, it was weird. I ordered, uh, this um, uh, Ennio Morricone compilation of uh, Giallo soundtracks, and it—I actually got it the day he died, and it was like I, I, it was the freakiest thing. I, I opened it; it was a beautiful yellow cover, and he died that day, so that was kind of kind of kind of um, odd and sad. Uh, but what a career! Serendipitous. Um, serendipitous, yeah. Um, so that that was one that I got in the mail recently. Um, I miss going to record stores, though. I do. I miss it. I miss browsing the bins, and can't can't wait for this to be over. It's one of the things I'm looking forward to getting getting back to doing is you know digging digging in the crates. I hear you. You know, I, I want to bring it a little bit back to the movie because another thing that. I was curious about upon watching it again is thinking a little more deeply about the function of a lot of the props, such as Mighty Joe Bong at the very end of creating, having the engineers and the people who are in charge of creating these things that they are, I don't know, what's that whole process like of them creating something that may has the capability of actually functioning outside of this movie and may have inspired so many people to create the most ridiculous bongs out there. I mean, <laughs> this thing's completed with a, a seatbelt strap for God's sakes. Right. Process of like going back and forth with like the people who, with a prop department or whoever is engineering these things. Yeah. Like, I don't know, like if they're have a base knowledge of like how 
pot works like just like where is the starting point for something like that uh you know i well i don't uh like i said many years ago i'm sure there were sketches i know when you talk about um uh props if you remember the puppet yes there there are many sketches of different puppets and well i want to get this guy's name right uh he had come Spafford. Oh, forgive me if I'm wrong. I should look it up. Um, he was an a- uh, animator. He had done some animation for, I guess, Disney and Warner Bros. Jim Spafford? Oh, boy. I'm so sorry. It's been a long time. But uh, I know with, like, those puppets, we had done sketches, and uh, there were, like, different ideas. For, for the bong, I honestly don't remember i think we just wanted to make it as you know since we knew we were leaning into the comedy we wanted to make it as ridiculous as possible and everything you mentioned so glad you appreciated like the seat belt and all that and cobbling whatever we could onto it um uh did it actually function and work well there's some things we have to keep secret (laughs) i like that it had a very big carburetor. Let me put that. It had a, a shit. You know, if bongs have carburetors, this one had a Chevrolet carburetor on it. So good luck trying to figure out how to turn your Chevy carburetor into um, into a bong. Yeah, don't don't burn it for too long because yeah. I mean that'll burn your mouth. <laughs> Um, did you, are, were you able to keep anything fun from the set of the film or the production of the movie that you still have in your possession today, like in the office or something like that? Yeah. Well, I, I knew about those puppet sketches cause I still have those. I, those were beautiful <laughs> all the different ideas we didn't use. Uh, so I have that and I have some original one sheet posters. That's about it. Well, do you, did you have a favorite one-sheet poster? Because I know this film, when it debuted in the U.S., but it took like a year for it to get to like South Korea. And I didn't know if there was like a, a favorite poster you had from a you different... You broke country. up there for a second. Say that again. Oh, sorry. I didn't know if you had a, a different a favorite one-sheet poster of Idle Hands from a different country since I think it took like a year for it to get to like South Korea or other countries. But I don't know if there was like one particular one you loved the most. Um, I really liked uh, the original, the original, original um, domestic one sheet, which was a very Saul Bass-esque design, like the man with the golden arm, very graphic um, and probably like the least commercial thing. It was kind of shocking that um, that a major studio would get behind something so, so, uh, graphic and artistic and uncommercial is that original uh poster and then of course you know uh when the movie as i said got kind of flushed down the toilet and then it came out on video they went and did the smart thing by putting the beautiful people in it and and vivica fox and jessica alba on the cover um in terms but so that's the smart way to go if you want people to actually see your movie the, the poster for me to hang in my in my home office uh, as a work of art is certainly that original kind of Saul Bass-esque one. Um, well, I love seeing uh, Vivica and, and Jessica <laughs> as well. Um, I loved uh, the, the French title of the film. I'm going to speak French and I'm going to, my French is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mutilate this. So any French speakers who are listening, please forgive me. But the French title was uh, Le Main Qui Tue, which is the hand that kills. 
I thought that was pretty <laughs> cool. Mankey 2A. Um, it's kind of, kind of, it has kind of a giallo ring to it, doesn't it? The Mankey 2A. Um, yep. Someone... Uh, there have also been some some fan posters. Like I said, the fact that uh, that I talked about earlier, that 20 years later, you know, I, I'm learning about, you know, that it's developed this fan base over the years. There have also been some fan posters that have been fantastic. That I was like, man, where were you? You know, you might have saved this movie 20 years ago if suppose if we if we had this artwork. There's been some really beautiful uh, fan out uh, out there. Um, that has, uh, has, has, again, moved me uh, tremendously that, that people care so much. And, there's, you know, uh, um, there's been T-shirts and, and it, 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 uh, it has inspired some fans to do some great stuff. No, that's cool. Do you, making the genre films that you've done and the amount of fandom that comes with that, especially for Idle Hands, Oh, what's your take on this uh, this, this gracious, or maybe sometimes not gracious, but uh, the enormous passionate fans towards Idle Hands? Uh, does it just constantly surprise you uh, on some so many people was still loving this film, just like we do here, because uh, we just can't get enough of it still, 21 years later? It's thr- it's thrilling to me. It's just it, yeah. I mean, what what can I say? It's it's it was it was a very uh, you know, we, we we all worked really hard on it at the time. It was very, you know, a lot of people, it, it, it's so great that you're mentioning kind of the hard work that the art department did, the actors and everyone just worked very hard. And it's just, it was just so, um, so, so sad, uh, um, um, you know, that uh, it was a tra- it was a national tragedy what happened. And, um, the, the fact that, like I said, that you guys appreciate the film, um, on its own terms, um, is, is fantastic. I mean, I'm thinking about the, uh, uh, the people now who are having movies out in the crisis that we're in now, the movies that we talked about. That's why I, you know, I wanted to give props to the ones that I liked that I saw, like, like one BR, one bedroom and, um, and the beach house, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, I, I, I know how hard it is to, uh, to make a movie and I, I enjoyed those. And I, I, I hope that the current crisis that we're in is not hurting these films, that these filmmakers, uh, also meet fans who appreciate what they've done 20 years <laughs> from now. Right. Uh, it means a lot. I like that a lot. Preston? Yeah, it, but, you know, I have to talk a little bit about the practical effects. I know this is a topic that we all discussed when we did our podcast on Eat Brains Love, because there's a lot of practical effects there that are impressive. I mean, most notably the rat sequence. But in, in here, like, I mean, we can just make a laundry list of things to go down. And I would love to know, like, how they were achieved and things like that. But, I mean, we'd be here all day. But some of my favorites... Um, with the hand going in the pencil sharpener and uh, the guys sitting on the couch and then Eldon's heads upside down. And I think in the commentary, he was talking about like how there was like a, a platform for him to lay down. And then just like the mechanics of that. Um, I don't know if you can kind of just 
talk a little bit about the practical effects process for this film in particular and some of the ones that maybe were the greatest pain in the asses but ultimately paid off and looked good um, especially as you like narrow the frame in a little bit but when you spread it out it may look a little ridiculous but it's good for us um well thank you yeah i mean this uh, yeah uh, you know as as you note it this was you know in the days before uh cgi or i guess it was sort of in the infancy of, of, of cgi but we certainly couldn't you know do like now that your only real constraint is your imagination but then you know eldon like everything you're mentioning um all all had to be done practically so when you talk about like the hand in going into the pencil sharpener you know we had to uh build a special pencil sharpener that was hollowed out and and Christopher Hart, who, who played the hand, you know, was hiding somewhere under a, a platform. I, I, I think um, the most time-consuming and difficult stuff was uh, uh, motion control, which is the camera is uh, um, is attached to a, a, a kind of a computer, and you can move the camera, and the computer memorizes the exact camera movement, and then. Um, I'm going to get real technical now, uh, but it basically the, it, it, it can repeat the movement um, without the actors in it. So if you, you guys know what like a plate is, like if you shoot um, a, 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 a plate is just basically a shot, like a background shot uh, to fill in something. So what, what a motion yeah, so the- computer does is it, it makes like a moving plate. So you, you do the shot with the actor in it and then you have to there on the set at the moment decide what take you like and then the actor walks away and then then the uh computer films it again without the actor so that's kind of what we did with christopher hart uh playing the hand is you know he would um creep down the hallway or wherever it was and we'd have to then like i said on the spot decide okay that was that's the take i'm gonna have to use and then we would do the whole thing again that was very um very time-consuming. Uh, I think now uh, it's probably much easier digitally to kind of uh, erase that stuff. Uh, all the blood was, you know, practical. Anything, any, you know, so that's time-consuming. You know, if you if you do like a blood splattery effect and you want to go, yeah, yeah, if you yeah you want to do it again, you have to clean everything up. Um, so those are two. I don't know if you want to. Ask specifically about it. Yeah, the, so my, my memory. So when you were describing that process, there the the scene that came to mind is even something as simple as Nub carrying his head and then setting it on the table. And if I look close enough, I mean, I can tell that it's you may be going from uh, the actor's face to the prop's face, but it's so seamless. And I think that's just what makes this movie great, especially now, 20 years later, is that it has that charm of like the practical effects. The movie feels like it's like operating in its own world, and that's what makes it infectious. So it's just hearing you describe that, that's that's kind of like those individual moments that came popped up in my head. And I have so much appreciation. For well, it. I should give uh, if you're mentioning these things uh, to collaborators who I have to uh, give props to are, are Greg Canham, who um, designed the head and has done some amazing work. And also um, 
Steve Rifkin, who edited the movie, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when you, when you think if, if, to to pull something like that off, especially when you're you know dealing with practical effects, you have to have a really good editor. The editor has to know exactly what frames you can get away with and what you can't, and know where the eye, the viewer's eye, is going, and how to hide things in a cut. And so, you know, very often, um, if you know, like me, you grew up reading Fangoria magazine, and and your heroes were people like Tom Savini, who you know deservedly uh, should get all the attention um, that uh, that he does so richly deserve for all of his fantastic prosthetic effects. But um, I don't know if Fangoria ever really talked about the editors of these films, because if these practical effects weren't edited correctly. Uh, you would very easily, you know, see the seams and see the strings, and kind of often in um, in a movie, in a you know bad movie, in like a, a movie where you know your mystery science theater might laugh at. Often, um, if you're going to put blame on anyone, you could say, well, the editor. <laughs> I mean, even 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 if the editor says, hey, you know what, people are going to laugh at this. Let's not put it in the movie. Um, you look at a movie like um, like Alien, for example, you know the first Alien, Ridley Scott's Alien. The editing of that, you know, you you don't even really see the Alien um, in its entirety until the very end. The fact that you only see snippets of it and pieces of it, it's so much worse in your mind than what you could actually show. And and that's editing. Yeah, that's directing. That's the director. It's alive. Yeah. So the fact that you know that you're mentioning these things in my movie, I want to give. Um, uh, shout out to Steve Rifkin, um, who's who uh, is just a fantastic editor, um, and has gone. You know, mentioned James Cameron. Uh, Steve edited uh, Avatar, Avatar movies, um, among many Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, a lot, a lot of kind of effects-heavy movies because uh, he's an incredibly talented guy. I was lucky yeah. to work with him. I was lucky to get him. Um, Brian, before we move on to talking about our bloody question, I'm going to ask a silly question of my own because it kind of just popped up in my head as we're we're discussing this. But one of the things that uh, that brought me so much joy as being a kid who grew up in the 90s and watching this and how this movie's like in a time capsule, like it's just, there's just so many things about it that I just remember. Uh, having big headphones uh, that were playing like heavy metal music and then maybe having something uh, a little more soft that's playing on a whole different set. Um, and then that's just kind of, that appears at the very beginning of the movie. But uh, the, the single one that I wanted to discuss was the, the cloth stretchy textbook cover that Jessica Alba has that Devin Sawa's character picks up from the street. And so now I'm curious to know, is there anything from the 90s that maybe appeared in your film that you wish would have a comeback? Uh, hmm. The 90s, from the 90s that I wish would come back. Uh, maybe uh, the music. <laughs> <laughs> Punk rock music, rock and roll. 
I wish, uh, you know, uh, uh, I wish that would come back. I, and you know what? There, there are still bands, and it is, it's, um, it's, it's out there. And you know, Green Day is still making great music, and The Offspring is still, you know, they're, they're, they're still out there. Um, it's just not, it's not what the kids are listening to these days. So I'd like to see more people um, make more real straight-ahead traditional rock and roll music. I wish that would um, would have a resurgence. And you know, this year, you know, we, we lost Little Richard. Little like I, I listen to Little Richard. His music still like sounds dangerous to me. I don't know, but that's uh, <laughs> that's me. So I. <laughs> I, I, nobody, I yeah, nobody I, was doing the stuff he was back then, and then even having a young uh, J- or Jimi Hendrix as his guitar player back yeah. in the day too. Incredible, incredible, incredible. I like and that. You know, I, and I'm, I, I'm glad you say uh, it is a time capsule, because you know I, I, I've used this expression many times in this podcast, like for better or worse, like you know there. Um, there are there are jokes in that movie that, that I would never uh, approve of t- today, which is a good thing, certainly. You know, in insensitive jokes, and that that sensibility stuck in the '90s. You know, I think we're I think we've um, kind of evolved in a better way, uh, and uh, the the movie has um, has I, I I think there. It, it, it's taken a, a few hits and I would just say, you know, again, you're, you're absolutely right. It's an artifact of the nineties for better or worse. You know what well, I mean? We've, a, we've evolved. We've come, we've come forward <laughs> in many ways. Uh, and that's a good thing. Yeah. That's, that's something that me and Brian have talked about. Cause I mean, that's the whole point of our podcast is we're we're doing deep dives on a lot of these movies from the 80s, 90s and 70s. And then, yeah, sure, there may be some things that may not hold up today, but we can have enjoyable conversations about them. Hell, if we even talk about like I'm I have a three year old son and I'm sharing like movies like Aladdin in there with him. And there's elements in there that are not ideal to show yeah. kids today, but we can have a conversation about them. Um, and so I think that's re- the rewarding part of the, the process as movies age as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think you're right. Okay. So, uh, Brian, do you, is there anything else that you want to ask bef- uh, before we ask the bloody question? No, let's get to the bloody question. Sure. All right. Bloody question time. Question is for about idle hands. What would be a good sequel title to idle hands? Also, who would you cast present day or would you keep the cast the same and what would the film revolve around? Now, Preston and I already had our answers. We can tell you that. And we brought the question to Reddit as well, which was some pretty funny answers as well. But you, Rodman, what what, uh, what would be a good title sequel to your idle hands? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? It would be, you know, two idle, two hands. <laughs> <laughs> who wouldn't? Oh, man. Right? Isn't that it? No, I, no, that's perfect. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, and you know, it's it's an obvious plot where the uh, demon that um, takes over hands. Uh, One hand wasn't enough. Yeah, it ta- it takes over the entire um, string section of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, um, and we we filmed the movie in Berlin. 
and uh, you know, ex I don't want to spoil it, but the, exactly what happens when the entire string section of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra gets possessed by the hand demon. <laughs> so there you go. That it's perfect. opening night. It's opening night of uh, of uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the Ode to Joy. So and and uh, it all goes wrong. What what, what were some of the other uh, entries? Oh man. Oh entries. Uh, so Not, I, I, suggestions. What were some <laughs> suggestions? So so mine came in the form of Idle Feet, and it's centered on a marathon runner, an older marathon runner played by Daniel Craig who wanted to be compete in the Olympics as a runner, but he was too old, so his feet got possessed and tried to take out the other runners. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fun. And then I thought about idle pause, like do a whole dog thing. But, um, but uh, I, Isaac Priestley and Johnny Proton said, um, uh, they said, idle hands, devil's plaything. The title, same cast, because they've all still got it, but this time everything below Anton's neck gets possessed. I'd even accept another cameo from the offspring, but only as zombies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Voorhees89 said, idle hands, a farewell to arms. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought, motion picture notion said, my left foot, same cast. <laughs> um and uh yeah anton possesses the devil's hand uh they went uh reverse it for the sequel that was made by zebrahead 110 so yeah i think yours wins the cake to idle two hands idle two hands that is fantastic so, which how your power spelling too no, oh, I, I like that. And please, any listeners who love making posters and art, please make this as a poster. We will <laughs> feature it. <laughs> I want to see this. Uh, well, uh, Rodman, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us again today um, on our My Bloody podcast and talking about Idle Hands. Uh, you can get the, the Blu-ray on Scream Factory. It's got new... Uh, transfers and audio. Did you watch the um, the the Criterion or not the Criterion? I wish it was on Criterion. The uh, Scream Factory Collector's yes. Edition version. The, uh, the yes, the Criterion. <laughs> That'd be an interesting day when uh, when Criterion uh, puts it out. Um, uh, it's great. I mean, they they do such a great job. Scream Factory. You know what I mean? Everything they've done. They um, uh, uh, they take such care from everything from the transfers and the packaging and the extras. Um, so happy that it, it found a home at, uh, at Scream Factory. Um, it's just fantastic. This is, uh, uh, you know, we're in a golden age where companies like Scream Factory are, are taking such great care. I mean, they, they, they also put out my very first movie, The Unborn. You can get that mm -hmm. uh, on Scream Factory as well. And uh, again, they did a, did a beautiful, beautiful job of that transfer and restoration so thanks scream factory excellent and so and uh just before we leave the last time we talked for eat brains love is there going to be a collector's edition to that coming out a uh, physical format um there is a blu-ray of uh -huh. eat brains love um it has been it it it, it uh and you know you, you can um order it uh from i i you know wherever you uh online buy blu-rays um I don't like like we talked about. Unfortunately, physical media shops are not um, not their doors are not open these days. But uh, a, 
a Blu-ray of, um, of Eat Brains Love is out there, and uh, for you know physical media fans like me, um, you can add that to your shelf. <laughs> yes, we're all analog here for sure. We like it analog style but thank you so much uh, my bloody podcast we'll see you next time and thank you to rodman okay thank you guys much appreciated thanks again for your continued interest and support um as george romero always would say stay scared and stay safe in these times